Hi, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, remember, you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour every single day is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your audience-submitted questions. Second hour, we take a deeper dive into a topic. Today is video day. That always is the case on Thursday. So we're going to be talking about one of the video fundamentals, that weird little beast known as B-roll that really since the beginning of video and particularly particularly since the beginning of editing, has been one of the biggest problem solvers and uh, helpful ideas in our toolkit. So everybody kind of feels like they know it. We're going to try to do a little bit of a deeper dive into it, talk about some of the different styles. And I actually have an example from television uh, of a bunch of B-roll use in one of the popular programs. We're going to see if we can play back a little of that and look at how an expert used B-roll to make the program flow smoother. We'll also, right now, dive into our second hour because we always do general questions and answers for the first part of our show. So, Mitch, you're reading today. What do we got? Thank you, Bill. Our first question comes to us from Daniel Goldstein in Baltimore, Maryland. What technical, logistical, operational, and or interpersonal lessons can we take away from the prominent and glitchy live Twitter spaces event yesterday? John Preto, start us off. I, I watched this, and uh, it was kind of funny to see something go so wrong but uh but dave Sachs at the very end concluded very well he says it's not how you start life it's how you end and they end they ended pretty well so i give him that okay uh, alex your thoughts so many lessons <laughs> so, so many lessons so i mean one of the things that you never want to do is you never want to spike a you know do something you haven't done before in front of a lot of people without some pre-testing so what needed what was different they changed a bunch of things of what they normally do one thing is is that elon musk um you know did a twitter spaces i bet you he hasn't done very many of those on his own like actually hosted it and we would know that because they would have broken this a long time ago so basically they put they put the cdn under too much load and it started to break up and they started to have issues there. And so, so that was the, you know, that was the, the primary thing. There's a little bit of, you know, Elon Musk's uh, attempt, you know, tendency towards let's just wing it and figure out how this goes. Um, that that kind of probably got in the way for DeSantis. Now, DeSantis will recover from this. He's pretty much the, you know, what the front runner. It's not, it's, um, you know, not, not that big of a deal. But, but at the same time, we can learn that what you want to do is build up slowly <laughs> and test things if you can test something. So... If I had been uh, Mr. Musk, I probably would have done a series of talks about things on Twitter spaces um, with big stars or people ready to jump on to put some pressure on the network and see what what happens. You know, like, where does this go? How does this work? And try to get to millions of viewers. Now, they, they went to another account, which dropped them down to, you know, a couple hundred thousand, you know, and that then it worked fine. You know, it was working fine at a couple hundred thousand, but there's a big difference between a couple hundred thousand and a couple million uh, listeners. And I mean, they'll go back. This is good data for Twitter. They'll go back and take a look at what happened. Um, they'll figure out what they need to do with the CDN. Large scale CDNs, there's like five of them, <laughs> like they can do really big numbers, even in audio. Um, and so, so that's one of the challenges. And a lot of times you want to shift gears and create, there's a different way of building the audio segments so that they're long. What What most likely happened is that for high, for make basically getting low latency, my guess is is that the segments that were being created are very small. What happens is that creates an enormous amount of traffic on 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 the edge, 
And so usually when we do events that have more than a million people, we start making those segments about two or three times longer. So if you think about a, a segment being, let's say one second or two seconds long, we might make them six, eight, 10 seconds long. What that does is that it, it, it reduces the traffic, the, literally the packet traffic on the, on the network. And it makes a huge difference when you're at scale. It just makes it not as responsive. It takes a second to get to you. Like when you start, that first segment takes a couple seconds, you know, six seconds or eight seconds to, to start up. And so um, that's what people are trying to usually avoid. So they make really small segments to make it so that it's more responsive and people don't think there's something wrong. Um, anyway, so that's the um, most, that's, that's my guess is what happened was, is that they have really small segments and then they suddenly had a lot of people and it was just the, the management traffic, just the manifests moving around that, that probably broke up. Um, and so the, um, not the manifest, but the bits themselves. So the, so anyway, so I think that that's probably the issue. The lessons I think that we can take from it is, is that, number one, Twitter Spaces is pretty crude. <laughs> like, like, it's a pretty crude model. Uh, there's very, it's very hard to have any kind of real interaction. So it's just people talking. You know, unlike what we do here where we do Q&A and so on and so forth, that's not really possible on Twitter Spaces because if you ask people, anybody with a medium or a large, uh, the problem with Twitter in general is that anyone with a large following is not going to ask questions over Twitter because that means they're sending it out to all of their following every question. That doesn't make any sense at all. So, so the, the Twitter doesn't really end up ag aggregating the right, you know, or, or the all, all that it could in that, in that response. And so, so that's really the challenge that Twitter has. But the big lesson is, is that if you're a presidential candidate, if you start streaming early, fail early, fail often and get, you know, but, but have it be with a handful of people before the, before the campaign matters. And so we'll see if DeSantis learns that lesson. Um, live is important. Um, you know, it's not something, you know, people think that they can live on VOD. They can't, you know, it doesn't have any urgency. Um, and so uh, the, a campaign is not, it's like, you know, campaign is not a campaign without live interaction, without live presentations. And so we'll see how the, each candidate manages that. But um, in presidential campaigns, what most people don't see is that quietly those campaigns are usually doing 20 to 50 live streams a, a week. Um, you know, that they, you know, and, and that's happening. It's not happening in general. It's happening to specific verticals. And so, um, so anyway, so that's the, th these campaigns, the, you know, I think the challenge is the Biden campaign understands how to do that. Um, the, these, the Republican challengers have to figure it out. Um, and they have to, they have to learn, learn fast. <laughs> so, so that's going to be the challenge for them. Alex, I've heard you talk a little bit about warming the edge, and that was interesting. I was thinking about that when this failed, and I was thinking about what you have taught us here about that process of distribution. For live, is that a is that a same kind of a thing, or does it matter? It does, it, it, but I don't think that that was the problem here. I think the problem here was not warming the edge. I think that we, you know, with, with a lot of plat modern platforms don't need to warm the edge as much anymore than, as, as, as they used to. What happens is, is that you have to, what I mean by warming the edge is that at some point, there's no packets, you know, on the edge machines. And so it takes a second for that to happen. And so if they get jammed, what happens if that packet is, it gets jammed, it can go back to the, it can end up going back to the origin because it couldn't find something on the edge. And that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the origin. An origin, a typical origin server can't handle, you know, more than 20, 30,000 requests at a time. That's a lot for one computer. And that's a really powerful origin. Um, but you want to, so you want to get that out to the edge. So the first, the first people asking for it, get it out to the edge. And then as more and more people come, you know, hit it, more and more people are hitting those servers and it, and it allows them to keep that traffic away from that origin. 
Um, the problem is, is that, so you, but a lot of times um, stuff is kind of kept at the edge very quickly. Um, the, the modern operating systems will push it out to the edge as soon as people start requesting it anywhere. Um, you know, they'll just start getting bits out. And so it's a little bit, little bit easier to manage. But what I will say is that the, um, uh, I think that segment size is most likely what caused the problem here. Like, I think that's the, you know, the, it's just uh, how they were managing it and they were creating just a lot of paperwork. I mean, essentially that's what it is. They're, they have to keep track of where everything is and they literally just created more paperwork than the CDN could, could manage by having the pieces that it had to manage too small. That's my, I'm, I don't know that for a fact, but that's, that'd be my guess. That's where we see failures on really, really large streams. Fascinating. Thank you for that. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asks, what is the best way to capture and display Zoom meeting comments for use in Wirecast? It'd be great if Zoom ISO provided a Zoom meeting comment feed. Alex. It, it does and it doesn't. So the Zoom ISO uh, has all the Zoom OSC tools and Zoom OSC can see all the, com all the comments and questions. So you can go in there and be grabbing comments and questions in real time out of Zoom. Uh, with Zoom OSC slash Zoom ISO, passing those to some format that would make sense for um, Wirecast. Now, that, I don't think there's an automatic way to do that, but there is a, um, it is a, um, it is something that, that can be done with Zoom ISO slash uh, Zoom OSC, and then those can be uh, delivered back. Thank you. Uh, next question. From Grant Whitehead in Adelaide, Australia. I did some analysis of Zoom audio profiles today and made a video, which there's a link to. What would be some ways to measure the latency differences? Grant, um, nice. Thank you for that, uh, Alex. Yeah. So um, the the best way to, or one of the one easy way to do this without having to have a lot of um, extra apparatus is to fire an audio signal. It'll give you the audio latency, but typically that's timed with the video. And so if you have a if you play slash record out of an out of out of out of your DAW, you play out a tone, and then you're recording that tone back into the DAW as in another channel, you hit it, and it'll fire out and come back and, and, and back and right back up in there. And then you just have to realign that that tone. And you'll know how many frames or how many milliseconds, whatever you had to move it um, for the send and return. So you've got your send going out um, that it's record, it's, it's, it's going to send that signal and it's gonna send it out to Zoom. You're using Zoom ISO or something else to bring it back. Um, and uh, and then you just measure the difference and divide it by two. <laughs> that's your latency to the server. Uh, that's probably the, the simplest way to uh, measure latency uh, in, a, in a system. Next question. From Robert Shoji in Los Angeles, California, asking any recommendations for a short throw projector under 2K? It'd be used in a recreational hall style public environment. Thanks. Short throw versus short throw. Alex, how short? I, I, yeah, I, I guess the question is, is exactly that. That is exactly the, the question is how short? Do you mean that you want to put the projector right in front of the screen? Or do you want it to be, you know, a short, in my world, a short throw projector is under 10 feet. But there are ones that are sitting below the screen and, and simply projecting up. Um, the, the two that I would probably look at are Epson and BenQ. Those are the two that, uh, projectors that we've used the most, um, that will have short, um, BenQ and, and, yeah, and Epson are what are like almost every projector I've bought under $10,000 in the last 15 years. <laughs> you know, so, so I would recommend taking a look at those. 
I remember the first time I saw one of these in actual use, it was amazing to me because it was sitting literally one foot back from the screen, projecting virtually straight up, and yet through the optics in the lens, it had managed to create a very watchable, normal, unskewed output. And I thought, wow, there is some, there is some optical alchemy happening here. Mitch, your thoughts? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I can only comment on the challenge that you have there because don't you have special lenses that are required to do a short throw type uh, projection? Uh, last time I checked the uh, Sony that was like that, it was $60,000. So, Robert, that's a bit of a challenge it's, to keep it under 2K. There's a lot of corporate projectors that'll, that'll do that. I mean, they're designed to be, you know, and again, it's just the question is, is what do you mean by short throw? So for us, you know, almost every consumer projector is short throw because it's not, it really isn't designed to go very far. Long throw with extra lenses is like a cinemat, cinematic projector that is somewhere in the back that's pushing forward. But um, again, most, and it, it also depends on how big does that projection have to be? Is it 10 by 10 or is it 12 by 12 or 20 by 20? Um, and so, at, you know, you'll end up with built-in lenses that can handle a certain amount of that. Um, but under 2K, there's a lot of great projectors. It just depends on whether you're meaning short throw or no throw, you know, which is like putting right under the screen. So that that the no throw ones, I find that the quality isn't isn't great. <laughs> you know, so I'm not, you know, I don't I don't really like I don't I wouldn't buy one. I wouldn't buy one that you put right under your screen. I just don't think it looks nice. Yeah, I think sometimes the architectural considerations, particularly if you're trying to hide it, you know, there are rear projector. Uh, things And if you're working on a stage, you have plenty of room behind the screen to set up a reasonable projector, even a high brightness one, to make sure that you're putting out enough lumens in a rear projector. But if you get both the combination of having or wanting to sh throw from behind the screen and short throw, you're into a lot of money to make that, I think, happen really easily. So let's go on to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael. I'm looking at an apartment that may have fixed wireless services available from Hub 66, which is a local ISP. They quote 100 to 400 megabits per second and 8 to 15 milliseconds latency. Would that be acceptable for remote work? John Preto is going to start us off. You know, Chris has moved over to fixed wireless now and is having relatively good success. I, I just don't feel comfortable with fixed wireless as my main connection. As a backup, yes, but I would look at fixed fixed solutions prior to prior to fixed wireless it's just a preference alex yeah i i i, I would uh i've had trouble with my own because i have turkey vultures if you don't have turkey vultures you may be okay they like to sun <laughs> they like to sun they, they open up their wings in the in the day in the morning to to kind of warm up and they put their wings right in front of my antenna so you you know so you can have issues where birds and other things are are um are hanging out uh in you know in front of your in front of your fixed wireless i wouldn't i don't i think that it'd probably be fine i i would only use fixed wireless as a backup i wouldn't use it as a primary every day um i think for certain events we've used fixed wireless we there's there's a y line and tower stream and a lot of other ones that we've used but we i don't think we've ever used them by themselves like that they are one of the connections that we use as a backup but we rarely you know put all of our eggs into that basket because it's wireless um, now, there, and there's lots of things that can happen with a lot of different transmissions, but I would worry a lot about making that my only, my only connection. 
think there desperately needs to be a white paper on common chicken mass versus turkey vulture mass and its yeah. impact on wireless signal transmission. Yeah, if I was going to ever do it, I'm going to have to like suggest to my son if he gets a research paper that he has to do, that he has to make, he gets to do it. It's like the the uh, bird mass as it relates relates right. to the transmission of wireless Ten signals. Ten common migratory fowls yeah, exactly, <laughs> impact exactly. on. You call it foul wireless. <laughs> How to foul up wireless. Yes, excellent. Yeah, exactly. Let's move on to the next question. And it's Andy Kokendorfer from VR Florida here. What is the best way to visually represent voice quality for Zoom presenters? I don't have a thousand plus for Nuendo 12 DAWs. Thanks. Uh, Alex. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the uh, what we use is pretty great. It's the waves. You know, this, this is the... Uh, loudness meter um, plus, I believe. Um, so, so having straight volume is good. The other thing you may want to look at is something like a spectrograph um, that you run in there. So a spectrograph um, showing on another window um, would be useful uh, because it now, and there's a couple things there. Uh, the main thing there is that if you have any buzz, any noise, anything else, a lot of times on a spectrograph, you can just see it. You can see a little line going across or you can see other things that are happening. So, um, so that, that might be something to look at. Um, the other thing is, is and I know that um, Wansi Robles is working on that for this, for here, is um, you can also look at, at level history. Level history is really useful because, you know, it's, it, we can look at the loudness meter, but if you have a level history of that loudness meter, uh, oftentimes it, you can see over time that that person's in or out roughly. Um, and it's much easier to, to, to see the tra trajectory as opposed to the, the momentary capture. Uh, Mitchell. It's interesting that Zoom doesn't have a meter in it or some type of device that allows that, although it's probably coming with applications now, part of what Zoom has to offer. Um, I have reached out to our friends at Waves and said, look, you guys should make a uh, a plug-in that works with uh, Zoom so that we can see loudness and things like that. Um, if you want to do it separately, I think I uh, mentioned uh, a few shows back that uh, Orban has a free CBS-style uh, loudness meter, which is available it's uh, orban.com forward slash meter if you want to use it. Nice. And um, if you didn't stop by yesterday, you should go back and review. Our guest yesterday had a brilliant presentation, including a lot of material on voice intelligibility and, and how to get signals. I mean, you're saying voice quality, and that's one of the primary factors that you want to look for in any kind of spoken word presentation. So I would go check out yesterday's. Um, it is... About the time when we uh, remind you that your questions drive this show. So you have two functions to do here. Put your questions in if you have interesting uh, ideas or things that you want to learn about. It's a great panel today. Even though that we are few, we have a lot of experience represented here in the panel. And we would be happy to entertain your questions. But also, equally as important, do your voting. We want to condition you to that because it is absolutely critical that we know what you want us to spend the most time talking about. And the voting system is how we drive that process. So let's go to uh, the next question. Yeah, plus one on what Bill just said, because without the questions, I don't have a job. Uh, next question in from Robert Shoji in Los Angeles, California. Any recommendations for an AV consultant company, Los Angeles area, that can recommend equipment and install a basic AV system in a recreation hall style environment? Thanks. Alex, you know people. You'd still have a job. You just would, we just pay you a lot less. You know, pretty much, John. 
Oh, you're going to cut it in half again? Cut it in half again. Yeah, exactly. Oh, anyway, so the, um, uh, yeah, what you want to look at, I don't know about a specific one for Los Angeles, but you really have to decide what level that you're looking for when you're talking about an AV consulting company. So, um, you know, there are a lot of folks that are pro- in this, you know, uh, group. Uh, there's, uh, there's a few people in L.A., uh, I know that we do that. You know, O9O does that kind of work um, as far as showing people how to put things together for for what they what they need there. Um, and uh, so so anyway, so I, I there's there's lots of people that can do it, and then there's big AV companies that really specialize in installs um, to make that work. So you really have to look at what when you look for trying to answer that question, you have to figure out what's your budget. Are you trying to figure out how to solve this with ten thousand dollars, or twenty thousand dollars, or a hundred thousand dollars, or a million dollars? And there are different AV companies that will serve that use well, um, depending on what you have there. Let's go to the next question. From John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania, Final Cut Pro just launched on the iPad. So what version of iPad is recommended and how much memory, what version, etc.? Alex. If you're getting it for Final Cut and Logic, you should get the beefiest one you can get. I mean, you, you know, I think that you're not going to want to cut corners on it. Now, I'm using Logic and I'm, I have Final Cut open actually on my, on my iPad. And this is not the current version. It's one version before that. And, uh, and it's, so it's an M1, I, it's got, it's probably tapped out on the memory. Um, so whatever that was and tapped out on storage. So those things are, are set pretty, pretty high. Um, but it's an M1, it's not the current, again, not current generation. It's one generation behind and it's working great. So it can work with the older ones and it can, it can do that, those things. I think that, um, but if you're going to get something for the future and you're going to keep on wanting to push this, you're going to want to have as much horsepower as you can into it. You're really buying a computer that makes this work. It just happens to be a little bit more portable. So you're probably budgeting $2,000, $2,500 for an iPad to run, run these effectively. You can probably save a little money, but I wouldn't, but you'll, it'll cost you in time, you know, so you just have to think about where you where you want to go with that. But it, it's a, I have to say, I don't know, Bill, have you been playing with Final Cut? I have not for a couple of reasons. Uh, the 1066 update caused some problems with my main machine. So I'm, I'm sending out a little bit of caution about that. Make sure you do the correct update if you're going to play with this. Apple wants to push the new system because of, I think, the iPad Pro Final Cut uh, Nexus. And um, I actually had to backgrade to the previous version of the system because it caused some problems with desktop Final Cut on an Intel processor. They weren't massive. I could undo it very easily. And it turns out that I'm, I imagine that these small problems will be solved. People were talking about the fact that it was uh, plugins that you might have existing in your system that use the FX Plug 3 architecture. And there are quite a few of those still out there. That's been deprecated for a while. But if you've have if you've been in computing and in this for a long time and you still have some of those, be careful before you upgrade. Just back everything up like I did so that I was able to revert back. And um, that and my iPad is a slightly older version. So it's going to be a little while before I can play with it too much. You know, I'm, I'm definitely playing with, you know, right now, I've just been playing with the, the demo. They have a demo project that you can kind of move around. And I found it to be very fluid. Like, it's a very fluid experience um, to, to move around. I was, I was pretty surprised at how easy most of the things were to do. Um, I, I, I can definitely see kids really getting into this and educators and people who just want to build quick videos. Um, my, my big thing is going to be try to do like a how-to of something or some kind of description and shoot the whole thing with my iPad 
and then bring it into Final Cut and cut it all on the iPad. The idea that you have the camera, what I'm really interested in, in the idea that I've got the camera. So I shoot almost all of our, like when we do how-tos on how to build a kit, for instance, for 090, I shoot it all with my phone. We shot them with 6Ks and we've shot them with bigger cameras. It just wasn't worth it. The amount of trouble that we went through to do that. And it was so portable and I could do little mini jib shots with my body. <laughs> I just kind of move over with the phone. And, um, and I think that uh, I, I think that it, but there was still this like, I shoot it all, I then download it and then I edit it. And then I, oh, I need one more clip. And so then I go back and shoot it. So the idea right now that I can shoot it and immediately put it into the edit and then shoot another thing and have it all in the same device, is pretty compelling. And I've been doing that. I mean, I've been doing that a little bit with LumaFusion in the past. Um, and so I think, but I think that this market is big, you know, and I think that I think it's going to be really interesting to see what people do with it. I 100% agree with that. In fact, I was talking to somebody online earlier today. The last five projects I've done for one of my largest client has been to go out to events that they sponsor, shoot on my iPhone on a monopod, come back and kick out a somewhere between one and two minute promotional piece. They get a lot of uptake on Instagram. They're very high uh, energy little pieces. And uh, one of the things I was really excited about in the 1066 upgrade is that using um, your camera in HDR mode, which captures a lot of dynamic range, it used to be a little bit difficult, not a lot difficult, but you had to set up your storyline in Final Cut or something like that so that you could accept that footage without it looking blown out and having to correct every clip. Now they've automated that process, and now you're going to be able to take those iPhone modern shot sh uh, clips, dump them directly into the timeline, and it'll process them correctly to get them looking good. And boy, the shots do look really, really good for a just basic straight out of the camera shot. And to be able to quickly cut those together on an iPad for something, that would be absolutely transformative for the kind of work I'm being asked to do more and more. Fewer and fewer clients want the half-hour training video. More and more of them want to use media to engage with social and things like that. And that's exactly what this system that Apple seems to be building on the, on the iOS system seems just beautiful at. So we'll see as, it, as we move along. I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if we get a situation where you do multi-camera with the iPhones. You can have a bunch of iPhones, like, just feeding back into Final Cut. You hit record on Final Cut, and it just, you know, pushes out all, you know, records all of them and then in, and wraps it into a multi-cam would be... Oof. Oof. Yeah. Well, anyway, there's a lot of, lot of action happening there, and, and it's just the beginning of it, so we'll see. Let's move to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas... What happens if you plug an iPhone 14 Pro Max into a MagSafe charger and a Lightning charger at the same time? Good idea? Bad idea. Uh, Alex? I think it'll just ignore the, the, the inductance. I think it'll just go straight to the cable. Once you plug the cable in, it's smart enough to know not to do it. It's not, gonna, it's not good or bad. It just won't do anything. It's just um, that, That's my theory because I would never do that. <laughs> so, so like, like I'm not going to take an expensive phone and put it and 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 give it two power sources. So I, I'm I'm going to guess that it's not a problem. And no, I would never do that. I would never try to give it two sources um, ever, not even for a second. So so that would so I so I, I'm going to you know my my idea, my theory is that it won't do any damage 
There's no way you're going to get me to test that. I'm going to confirm it because I accidentally tested it on my bedside <laughs> table. My phone was plugged in. I was really tired after a long session, and I kind of woke up in the middle of the night. Going, oh, God, i got to make sure my phone's charged. So I stuck it on my MagSafe charger beside the bed while it was plugged in. And as Alex said, nothing happened. Nothing went wrong. I've been surprised. Even sometimes the little Apple cables, you, you if you ever break one and you take a a single edge razor blade to it and open it up. There's a lot of circuitry in those things. They're very intelligent. And I think the whole Apple charging system is pretty smart about, oh, this knucklehead's made a mistake. Let's keep him from blowing up everything. So I wouldn't do it anyway, but I don't think it's instant death. Let's move on to the next question. From Bobby Grandone in Westbury, question is, if I play back a video from OBS into Zoom, the audio sounds horrible. Is there a standard to look for? Mitch Hill. Um, without hearing the audio, I can't be specific, but I'll make a guess at it and say 90% of the time when you have bad audio going into another device, it's a sample rate uh, mismatch. So if you're running 44.1 into something expecting 48, you're going to get glitchy, weird sounds. So uh, check the uh, the sample rate that's being output and uh, make it, make it, I believe Zoom wants 48. So if you're sending that 44.1 out, you're going to have problems. Alex? I'm not sure if it's 48 or not that Zoom wants, but what I would do is, I, I agree with, with Mitch. I think that it's, it's most likely a sample rate issue when you say. The one thing that I will say is that when you send stuff, when you say horrible, um, try, to, uh, try to give us symptoms. You know, like you, you don't want to go to the doctor and say, I feel bad. Like, I, you know, like, okay, what are the symptoms? Do you feel hot? Do you feel, is your if your stomach hurt, where does it hurt? If you have a headache, where, in, where on your head? is that headache. Um, so when you think about that, think about it now, if you hear a lot of clicking, like there's, it's discontinuous and you hear clicking, that's a sample rate problem. Um, if it's distorted, that might be some kind of gain or transfer problem, you know, so if, the, if, if and so what we want to, you know, if you ask that question again, just ask it, ask us uh, uh, with some symptoms and of what does it actually sound like when you say horrible? Um, if you, if, if you define that, we might be able to give you um, more, but I think generally bad play out from one app to the other is a, is a sample rate problem. And last night when I was preparing for the show today, I wanted to give examples of some of the use of B-roll in from, uh, from commercial TV and things like that. So I grabbed a little piece of a show and every way I grabbed it up until the last solution that I used, I had trouble with the audio because I think of the, um, rights management stuff behind the scenes. I am using it, I think, appropriately, very tiny little things for criticism, which is one of the things protected by fair use. But we don't know. So we'll see whether or not um, this gets into trouble. I'm planning on using very short segments. But to educate, to use these segments to point out something, um, the biggest problem in all my translations was audio going wonky because of some sort of man rights management stuff in the background. They would not let me download anything clean from the website I was trying to use until I found exactly the right tool to do it. So I think this is, uh, it, it's complex. Uh, Mitch, you had another thought? Yeah, a quick example of a sample mismatch problem uh, is trying to put a 44.1 file into Premiere. Um, it's just not, does not like it. There's no way around it. It's better to convert it in logic or some other program first and do that. Now that doesn't help you in a real time situation, but in post that's generally the uh, symptoms you're going to have. 
Yeah, I think uh, Alex and I both said the same thing over the course of time. You want to get everything in the same, you know, for best editing circumstances and things like that, you want to get everything in the same, marching to the same drummer. And that usually means 48 kilohertz for digital video. If everything's translated into that before you start, it solves a lot of problems. Let's go to the next question. From Abraham Barrera in San Diego, California. Abraham asked, I'm looking to buy either a Mac Mini Pro or MacBook Pro for traveling and editing on-site locations. I already have a portable monitor. What do you recommend? Ooh, we got all sorts of choices here. Alex, what's your th current thinking? Mac Mini Pro, 100%. <laughs> like, so if, you're, if, you're, if you already have a portable monitor and you're ready to be, like, set up a little bit, you know, the, the laptop's fine for uh, if you want to... You know, a laptop's fine if you're going to be traveling and you want to try to edit in the plane or do something else or, you know, that type of process. But the Mac Mini has a lot more I.O. Um, it's going to be a lot quieter. It's going to be, you know, I think more powerful over time. You know, Mac Mini Pro is going to be more powerful than most of the than the of the um, MacBook Pros. Uh, so a loaded Mac Mini will cost less. And if you, again, if you already have the monitor and the keyboards, uh, will cost less than the, than the Mac Pro. And I think it'll give you more utility. So um, I'd recommend the, the Mac Mini Pro. Yeah, for me, I just don't like having all those separate parts to, and the cables to connect them to hang around, but that's just preference. I think I, Alex is probably right in pure value. And I have to admit, I, I, I made the mistake of getting a, I mean, I'm gonna basically get a 14 inch laptop and there's a, the advantage of it is it fits into a lot of things. The disadvantage is I just, I hate working on it. <laughs> so just in case you're like, I, <laughs> I hate it. And so, so I, I do everything I can do to avoid using a laptop. And I find the 16 is okay. Um, I really miss my 17 inch. I, I really loved a laptop experience when I had a 17 inch laptop, when Apple made one. Um, as, as they've gotten smaller, I found them more restrictive. And, and I'm saying this as someone who probably used a laptop as my only computer for a solid decade, you know, before... Pretty much before COVID, um, I, I was using a laptop, and that was my computer. Um, and, and now that I've kind of moved over to having more desktop machines, um, I still take a laptop out, but every time I open it, I'm just like, oh, I can't believe I'm living this way. Like, this is horrible. It's a horrible experience. You know, so, so that's, that's my impression of, of, uh, of laptops now. Yeah, my, my experience was a little bit different in that on my desk, I have a laptop that I use as my daily driver, and then there's a second screen right above it. And with the new IPS monitors that are USB-C or Thunderbolt-driven that you can just do that, I found a little rig so that I can recreate exactly the same desktop experience in a hotel room or on a train. On a train, I usually have to put it on the tray table next to me and uh, continue to edit just like I'm back home. And, and all the physical connections are just the same, feels the same. Anyway. Well, I think the problem that I have is that I, I do, uh, you know, I find that a lot of things, I, I don't like going through hubs because I find that a lot of stability issues occur with hubs. And yeah. so as a result, having only four USB-Cs and one of them having to be power means I got three USB-Cs on a Mac, Mac Pro. On a Mac Mini Pro, you're going to have four Thunderbolts you are going to have you know, four Thunderbolt connections that all have their own, on the Pro, you have, they all have their own lane. So they all, they have four independent lanes. You then have two USBs, you have a, their, your own ethernet um, plus the power. It's just a, a lot more IO that's available to the user and, um, and, it's, and it's quieter, like, cause there's no fan. I mean, there's a fan, but it's, it's very quiet. So, yeah. um, so anyway, that's the, again, if I, uh, and, and I'd rather have, you know, I have, a studio and a couple Mac minis. And I like stacking up multiple computers as opposed to it. it, it when something goes down, I have a friend of mine that has a, their, their laptop, Apple ran some automated update and didn't make it to the other end 
um, and now they're trying to get it recovered, they may have lost a lot of data you know, on their, on their computer. And for me, I'm like, well, I got a bunch of computers and I have external drives. And if a computer goes down, I just move on to the next one. All right. Speaking of moving on to the next one, let's do that with questions. And it's Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California, asking, if you're in the ATEM hardware switcher world and the cloud is the future, does that mean the vMix is the future? Alex Lindsay, is vMix the future? Maybe. I mean, it's it's pretty popular on in the cloud. I think a lot of people are using it. Uh, I think it's what will be interesting is now that we have 2110 with Blackmagic, my curiosity is whether Blackmagic will understand that there's a huge market for them to put their own editor, you know, the, the, what the ATEM as a, as a cloud-based software would be very popular. If Apple, if, I mean, if, if, if Blackmagic came out and said resolution independent ATEM software, 50 bucks or, you know, for $50 or a hundred dollars or whatever, I don't, it, number one is I don't think it would eat up the demand for their hardware. There's a bunch of reasons to have the hardware that's there. Um, I don't think, I think that it would just explode in the use of it on, in the cloud. And so, so I think that the, what could be the biggest competitor to vMix would be ATEM in the cloud. Um, I don't see a lot of other editing tools. I mean, again, there are other editing tools out there. Grass Valley makes them, there's RT, um, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of other, OBS is used in the, in the cloud. I think in the current moment, vMix is probably the best editor in the cloud, but it's, pretty clunky <laughs> like i was just using vmix last week it's, it's, it's a really clunky clunky uh, uh editor so so it's you know it, there's a lot of room for somebody to come in and disrupt uh, vmix is in the right place at the right time and it's done well but it's not it's not like it's a you know someone could could take them to town pretty quickly if they wanted to interesting let's move to the next question here's dave burke from alexandria virginia asking i've noticed the panel's preference has changed over the years from a completely plain background, the one that has a little more personality. Is it just a change in taste, or did Zoom get better at handling backgrounds? Alex, start us off. Uh, I think that it wasn't so much Zoom getting better or not getting better. I think that it just had to do with we, when we started. I know for me, I just didn't have anything to show you. There was a big window behind me, and so the best thing to do was to make it gray. Um, and, just, and, just, and I think that that's better than... I think a plain gray background is better than... Uh, than having a, a virtual background, you know, I think you know, I think virtual backgrounds are an eyesore, and they you know devalue you as a presenter. <laughs> like, you know, like, like it's it's really not a not a good look. And so, um, so, uh, so I think that it, you know, so having a that was an easy way to do it a pop up screen that goes behind somebody that is there uh, without the ugly key that comes with uh, with virtual backgrounds. Um, I think is 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 definitely um, the best way to to kind of take a look at that. Um, but I think with all of us, what we noticed was it was really fun to have the character of the person. You know, to have I have a lot of the stuff behind me is artifacts. You know, um, I think almost all of them, except for uh, this uh, oscilloscope that Courtney gave me <laughs> to put back there. Uh, almost everything else are you know there's um, are artifacts from my life or from my product my 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 uh, professional life. And so I think it's kind of fun to, to have that stuff back there. I think that as you look at each one, you get to get a feel for that person for whether it's John or Bill or Mitch, you're getting this, this, um, this feel for who they are. So I think that it's the best way to do this is to have a set back there um, that is something that's a representation of you 
um, that's there. I think it makes it more personal. I think it makes it, you feel more connected to that person and it feels a little less artificial. I think the second best thing to do is, is a, some kind of regular plain screen of any kind that you decide to put back there. And I, then I think the third best is some kind of green screen that you key something in. It's just really hard to manage the edges well. And then I guess, uh, I would, to be honest, I would, if I feel like I don't have a place to do one of those three, I just go in as audio. <laughs> like I don't, I won't, I won't do a virtual background. So I, um, I'll, I'll just join, join a meeting with audio. Um, if I feel like I'm anything that matters, I'm going to be in front of a real camera. Mitch. I don't care what you have in your background, a virtual background. I agree with, uh, Alex is just horrible. It creates that jello head effect and all the other things. So Stay away from that. Anything you have in the background would work. For me, um, I looked at uh, what was going on when I built my room here for uh, office hours, and I noticed on YouTube, everybody has a blue background, or at least they did. And so blue just being a very complimentary color to have behind you. I decided not to do that because I didn't want to be a me too. So I figured being a radio broadcaster in the past, um, I'm just going to put artifacts, like Alex said, behind me. Uh, I've got my on-air sign. I've got my meters bouncing around behind me. Um, that those were cool things to have just to show a little bit of character and then uh, utilizing bokeh to give that neat little perspective where it pushes my image forward. Uh, it, it, it just it gives a little depth and continuity to what's what you're looking at. Yeah, I'm going to follow with what Mitch said and, and, you know, getting better cameras and paying attention to our scenes essentially uh, was the change for me. When I was in the voice booth, everything was completely in focus. Now, there wasn't much out there to look at. There was just a waffle pattern because of the soundproofing. Uh, but as I moved into the larger spaces into uh, converting a room to do this, when I got to the point where I improved my camera so that I could do shallow depth of field, suddenly it was that combination of it, there's an interesting background, but it's not a distracting background. And sometimes for me, that is the combination that I'm looking for. I want people to get a sense of where I am and the fact that this is a real place and I'm in it. But at the same time, I don't want them spending too much time going, what is that thing on the shelf back there behind? Hmm, I wonder if I ever, that's the same model I have. That's a distraction rather than an enhancement. Alex, you had additional thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think we are going into a future where people are going to have a space that they jump into virtual event, a virtual conferencing events, all those things are going to be something that people have in their house, you know, and I've already seen it advertised. It was advertised during COVID, but it hasn't gone away actually, where people are saying there's a room that's kind of built for video conferencing in the house, you know, as they, as they um, look to sell it. And I think that taking spare bedrooms and turning them into quote unquote studios um, is going to make expenses. But if you are a, what I will say is if you're a virtual, if you're, if you're a, if you're working offsite, so you're, you've decided to do a work from home solution, you are crazy if you don't build a great studio because that makes you feel more real for everyone, feel more important. Um, you, you know, it's, they, they feel like you're there much more than if you, I mean, it is to me when I see people working remotely and they're coming in with their open laptop with their, the, you know, the microphone that came with their computer, um, I, I just feel like, wow, you're really missing an opportunity there. And that's why people want you to come back to the office. <laughs> that's why they make fun of you. When you outperform everybody at the office, when you look better and sound better than they do, it really puts everybody on their heels, you know? And so I think that if you're, if you're definitely, if you're working from home, if you're meeting with clients remotely all the time, uh, it is a, 
It's just a business expense, you know? And I think that, uh, I think people have to really think about taking one of the rooms in their house and turning it into something or their garage or something that that's their office, you know? And when you come in, they're going to look good and sound good. And that's the cost, you know, you're saving a lot of money on gas. You're saving a lot of money on other things and you should spend it on a basic studio. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Studios under $10,000, but you want to think about that basic studio that, that you're going to put together, maybe not all at once, but in pieces that really improves your presence. I think that's also important for people in, in companies. I really think companies could get a lot more people to come back if they built a, a space for people to come back to, that they had their own little pod that was quiet, that was about eight feet wide, maybe 12 feet deep, and they, they look good and they sound good. They have a little shelf on the back they can throw stuff into that people can see that creates a little visual interest. Um, and if, if companies did, did that for their employees, I think they'd find a lot of them, the employees, it's not that they don't want to come back to the office. They just don't want to come back to the, the pig pen that they were put in before, you know, it's just, they were all jammed into, um, you know, and if you, you know, drive, <laughs> if you drive down the five, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll pass a place where there's a lot of cattle and they're all stuffed together. And that's what the office has felt like for a lot of those employees. And so, um, so I think that that's the, uh, you, you know, I think that that's what they're resisting is the is the drive and the and then driving to something where they're just packed in like cattle or pigs um, is is part is what they don't like. And so I think that offices that are trying to now that we have all this free office space in all these cities, you know, people could get a lot more creative about what that actually looked like. Get you under another quick follow up. Yeah, Alex has said it before. It's the virtual suit you put on. This is the this is your presentation. Uh, when you spend some time having a nice presentation with an interesting background, well done video and good audio, um, you're basically have the best suit you could wear in a in a uh, business meeting. And if you go into a meeting with this kind of a look, you own that meeting. You basically are in charge. People look to you as the uh, uh, the arbiter of the uh, of the the gathering. So it's worth the investment. So we are getting close to uh, that time to get your votes in. If you haven't voted on the questions that exist in the queue, there are a good number of them uh, already. And make sure that you put those votes in because those votes determine what we're going to go to next and spend the most time on. So let's get back to our next question. Chad Lafarge from Columbia, Missouri, asking, if you had to develop a summer program curriculum for live streaming targeted at high school students, where would you start? Alex? Yeah, the, um, so I, I think the first thing is, is that you, you know, obviously want people to understand the basics of, of video and audio. Uh, the main thing that I would say is that you want to get, you want to have, uh, um, I would say three cameras and a little ATEM switcher and that's it. Like, you know, and, and some audio that, that, you know, some kind of little mixer, it can be, it doesn't, it can be a little analog mixer that feeds into it. It can be very basic. Um, obviously the more you have, the more I put in. But I get them to do some discussions first, um, you know, internally and just get used to the process of what it takes to go live and what it takes to get that there and talk. The most important part of, of live events generally is how you open and how you close. How do you get into this and how do you get out of it um, to make sure that you have kind of a clean show? Uh, and then, you know, learning how to do some of the basic graphics, learning how to do, it doesn't have to be crazy. I think that there's always a temptation to want to put a bunch of crazy stuff in. Some basic lower thirds, uh, maybe some basic super sources, um, you know, those types of things, if you have, if you have the wherewithal to have that hardware, um, then what I would do is really think about how do you take this out into the community? How do I go to, a, you know, I would stream Q and a 
to even if it's only a handful of people, but stream Q and A from uh, different vendor, different companies. You know, it might be the pe- the local pizza shop or the or the you know the the hobby shop or the you know the whatever that is, and talk to somebody and ask them questions. And that can be a single camera, it can be multi camera, but figure out how they kind of interact with folks. The more you can get to. The, the most important thing oftentimes is to get your basics and then get out there and do it. And, and a lot of it's just doing, doing as much of it as possible and then asking questions. Um, with live, experience is everything. And so I would, I would really try to get them streaming something every class that's challenging. The more they can try to stream for a client, taking on a client is really important to learning because they'll at, what happens when you learn in a vacuum, when you are going to teach yourself something, you skip things that are hard. Like that's how that happens. Like you go, oh, you know, you don't you don't dig into the things that that are really um, that that are really needed. You, you'll tend to skip them because uh, you know that, and, and that happens with every everybody and everything. Uh, when you have a client, they'll just ask you to do something that you're that's quirky. Like, oh, I really want to do this, or I really want to show this, or while you're working on it, you'll see as you look at that, you'll see different. Um, uh, the you, you'll you'll see different bits and pieces there, and that's going to help you learn and grow much faster. So doing streams for, for free for local co- community organizations, for little companies, or I mean, you know, like the local stores or whatever you want and doing, Q, you know, some kind of Q&A and doing those things will help push the students much faster. And then you just need lots of Q&A. So that, those would be my recommendations. Next question. Tony Mobley from Nuna, Georgia weighs in. I just wanted to thank Alex Lindsay and the Office Hours community for 100 episodes of Conversations with Tony Mobley. And Tony, we want to thank you for 100 episodes of Conversation with Tony Mobley. This has been a fabulous thing to watch. John Preto has some thoughts. Hit the wrong button. Uh, I watched last night, Tony. Outstanding. Congratulations on your 100. Look forward to 100 more in a quite touching show last night. So I, I appreciate your effort and and persistence in getting to 100. Not a lot of people get there. Thanks for... Uh, Absolutely. For and Tony, you'll never know well how done. much... It, it, we've just enjoyed watching your journey through this. From the day you came into office hours in the early days, with that humbleness and just asking questions to see how far you've gone through interaction with this community, it's been uh, inspiring. I think honestly inspiring. So thank you for doing that. Uh, Alex, you had a final thought for him? Yeah, I just want to thank Tony for doing it and also thank the whole team that wrap, that kind of has come up under Tony to make that actually happen. There's like a, another small village that occurs once a week um, that has uh, has conversations with Tony Mobley uh, work. It's a great little lab. It's a great um, way to um, kind of move forward and experiment with new things and produce a great show. I mean, I think Tony has a special energy that he brings to the show that's really, uh, as someone who's been on it, has been interviewed, uh, gets you into a certain like relaxed state where you're just talking about stuff. It's... It's really cool. Very much so. Next question. Way to go, Tony. Next question in from Dorcas Wisdom in Bronx, New York. A congregation with a Behringer X32 looking to invest in equipment to have a separate audio mix in another room for their live stream. Which of these is recommended? Another mixer like the Behringer X8, excuse me, X-Air 18, or a computer with a digital audio workstation? Alex, what's your recommendation? Another X32. <laughs> like, like I would just get another X32. The price, I think, on the X8, XR, and number one is the XR, the Air 18s are really hard to get. And when you get them, they've gone up a lot in a price. So the price has, the price difference between the XR18 and the and the, the X32 has, the, the Delta has dr- dramatically reduced. 
And so as a result of that, you know, and really, you just want to keep on buying stuff you're going to grow into. If you get an XR18, it's really a home, in my opinion, it's like a home, like hobby mixer that is great, but you're going to hit the, the and I've, I've owned a couple of them, um, and we use them as glue, or we used to use them as glue. So we just use them for gluing comms to other things and everything else. And in that environment, they work fine. But I wouldn't, if I was continuing to build, a lot of times what you end up doing in a project is limited. It's like a bag. You'll just keep filling the bag and you'll fill the, the, what you can do because you have that equipment there. So I, I would not right now get an X-R18 and probably get an X-32. Next question. Liberty White from Atlanta, Georgia asked, for some reason, when I create a loom video with camera and screen selected, my camera doesn't record. It's screen only. I'm connected via my Blackmagic 4K. How do I fix this? I, don't, I think a lot of us were looking up Loom. I had not heard of it before, but it's an asynchronous video messaging system that's used in a lot of workplaces. Alex, do you have any thoughts on it? I I I don't know how many workplaces it's used in. I mean, I haven't. I've I've, I've definitely seen it when it came out. I've not seen it used in the wild. So um, so I I think that most likely it's a uh, UVC type thing. I think that it's Blackmagic 4K. And I'm I'm not sure when you say 4K whether that's a um, ultra studio or a switcher. So if it's a switcher, it should just show up as a webcam and it should work fine in Loom. If it's an ultra studio, that's a different device that Loom may not support. So that'd be something to look at. Yeah, the first two places I look and see if there's drivers that may be required to get one thing into another. And the other thing is that sometimes if there's some sort of raster mismatch, one of the things about Blackmagic cameras, particularly the 4Ks and 6Ks, is that they have so many variations of a signal they can put out that they can somehow put out some odd times. Often I found they put out a signal that a receiving device just can't figure out. So one of the first things I do is dumb everything down to like a 1920-1080 standard HD with nothing weird going on and see if the device on the other end will accept that because that's a pretty much standard video signal. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael. The BBC used a private 5G network for coverage of the coronation of King Charles III. Could private 5G be a game changer for large events? And there's a link to it. Uh, Alex. Sorry, sorry. But tell us how you really feel about this. <laughs> uh, I've had the opportunity to work on 5G for for a lot of these things. Uh, every time you see 5G, there's a cell company somewhere in the background that's paying for that. Um, they are desperate to try to show that the, the biggest boondoggle in the history of phones um, uh, is still worth it. <laughs> They're trying to squeeze out some 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 semblance of of uh, you know of of dignity out of the mess that five G is. Um, you know, so the, the you know what what five G does work for to be all to be fair is that you can you can you can have five G um, in a highly you know dense area and you have very low latency. Uh, the the transmission doesn't have to go very you know doesn't you, you don't you can put you have a lot of density in those transceivers. So if you've got transceivers every 100 feet, sure. But there's a lot of ways to handle something if you've got transceivers every 100 feet. So, so I think that, you know, it's, I mean, it, it, so the, the, the advantage of it over Wi-Fi is that the handoff between transceivers is far s smoother than typical Wi-Fi. So, so it's better than Wi-Fi, I guess, you know, in that, in that case. Um, but, but I, you know, there, there was no reason to cover the coronation with 5G other than Sky or, 
or 3G or um, whoever was saying, hey, you know, sold somebody on the idea of using 5G for it. But other than that, it's, it's always a cell phone company that's somewhere, somewhere back there trying to tell people that they should get 5G because it's, it's just a worthless platform. Mitchell. I agree with Alex. I, I'm confused over it because there's good 5G and bad 5G. Um, and I don't even know if the good is up to the test. So it's just a giant Ponzi scheme. Them? It's yeah, just a giant exactly. Ponzi scheme. It's a marketing scheme. thing. Like it's just, you know, they didn't have anything else to to offer. Other than, I mean, everybody needs something new. Uh, and I think that they thought it was going to be better than it was um, when they did it. I think that they were more, I, I don't know. It felt like they should have known how bad this was going to be. As soon as I started doing tests with this, and this is a long time ago, when we were doing tests and marketing and everything else for 5G, I was like, did they realize that this isn't going anywhere? Like, this is not going to, you know, like, if it, it works in an arena and it works in the city center, but as someone who doesn't live in any of those, I was very, very quickly sure that I was never going to see it. And if it doesn't have that kind of coverage, I mean, why are we, why is such an expensive rollout for no real benefit to the user? It, it's just a, it's just a huge Ponzi scheme. Let's I, go to the I next question. To have a, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I used to have a pair of Ked shoes that had a, the action wedge in it. I have no idea what that was or what it's it 5G. was legit. It was 5G. Well, it was wedge. 5G. <laughs> yeah. See, that's how we are. Uh, moving on to the next question. Rick Combs from Columbia, Tennessee. We use Restream IO to stream to YouTube and Facebook every four or five months. Facebook asked me to re-verify. Is there a way that I can re-verify when it is a convenient for me instead of find it out after trying to go live? Alex. Go live often. So what you want to do, there's no way to do that, by the way. The, the reason that they don't do that is they don't want you, if you have somebody else's account, they don't want you to keep on being able to re-verify it. They want to surprise you um, and have that there. They're not going to give you a way to just re-verify. But the way to do that is don't, just go live that day, go live the day before, go live that morning, go live. You know, we're, we're going starting and stopping live on Facebook all the time to make sure that everything's still working. I'm like, hey, are we still on? So, uh, and, and I do that with all the platforms. With YouTube, I'm streaming to a, another account until 20, 30 minutes before the, the, the event that I have there. So I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Let's go to the next question. Bobby Grandone in Westbury. Hello. When I try to play back a video through OBS into Zoom, the audio starts to break up or pop in and out. Is there a standard I should use? I also use Audio Hijack. Alex? Um, yeah, I think that it's... So one thing I would look at now that we know that you have Audio Hijack is, again, keep on looking at the sample rates. Um, and you just want to make sure that the samples are all the same. Um, and then the other thing to do is, with you have, if, you have, if you're running through Audio Hijack, I think that what you want to be thinking about is also... Uh, uh, look at your CPU usage. So you have to make sure if you're on a Mac, open it up, make sure that your CPU usage is not going over 60%. You should not stream over 60% on any computer. Like you're, you know, when you see it tapping over 60%, it's time to get a new machine or simplify your project. Next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul says, if you pr print notes with a pencil on a three-hole, eight-and-a-half by 11-inch college-ruled notebook paper, what's the best way to scan or make photos of these and convert them to text with links to the original image and store the originals? Yeah, most of the the big systems have ways to do this pretty automatic right now. Alex, what do notes. you use? Apple yeah. Notes. <laughs> Evernote yeah, it'll will do really it as well, do it. I believe. So Evernote will do it, but Apple Notes. So if, you're, if you're using a Mac, I mean, if I, I don't know about the PC or Android, but they they have 
I mean, almost all of them in some version of a notes app application, you can take the picture. I don't know about linking back to the picture, but you can definitely start selecting things all the time. Yeah, and I think we're we're actually now in the last minute, so we're going to make our transfer into our topic for today here in just a minute or so. A couple of things just to note between now and then. Remember that uh, tomorrow, Friday, typically we talk about um, something different. And today, now let's see if I have a note about it. What is tomorrow, Alex? What are you What are you covering tomorrow? I think we're talking the ten thousand dollars studio tomorrow. So oh, that's, that's right. Going to be that. Yeah. So that's that. The ten, you know. So I think we're going to talk. We talked about one thousand. Everyone felt very constrained in our group. They were like, oh, why are we having this conversation? Like, how can you do anything with 1,000? But we found some great solutions under 1,000. Now we're opening it up a little bit. There was a discussion about whether we should do 5,000, then 10,000, but I think we're just going straight to the $10,000 one. We're going to the bigger boat. We're going from the rowboat straight to a boat with a motor. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the uh, so I think that that's, so we're going to talk about that and, and what, and it, it, you know, the idea is not necessarily to, give you the formula to building to some degree we, we are but i think that one of the big things there is that we want to give people the um uh you know it, it's a thought process inside of that that constraint you know what kind of cameras can we get and and what kind of you know and i think that there are more and more companies you know the the 1000 is kind of the i'm getting started personally the um uh the the 10000 is this is my profession slash we're going to put a studio into an office that type of thing so we're slightly different look all right it's time for our switch over today's topic is b-roll and uh I, I, I a weird thing happened to me probably 15 maybe 18 years ago which was i was on set directing a corporate piece and the ceo was talking up front and in a break he kind of made a little fluff there, and we were taking a break, and he said, well, you'll just cover it with B-roll. And I went, wait, why do you know that term? Again, this was 15 or 18 years ago, and it was somebody in a, a business totally unrelated to video. And I thought to myself at the time, this is becoming common parlance now. With the rise of self-done video, more people understand the language of this than ever had before. And... So that leads to the question is what is B-roll and what it and, and Mitch hinted at this in our pre-show discussion. It comes from the days of film cameras when you loaded up a roll of film in a camera, you shot your primary thing, but if you wanted to shoot anything else, some sort of a look at what somebody was talking about or something, you'd put another different roll in there and that became your B-roll so that the primary shots were on the A-roll and the cutaways and other things were on the B-roll, you know, content that helped with what was going on. It has gotten way more sophisticated that and there's all sorts of different kinds of B-roll and there's a difference between well-executed B-roll and B-roll that fails. And so I was going to do a little talk through and really a demonstration live of some of what this is all about. And I went online and I grabbed a piece of one of the interview shows. I'm hoping we can do this pretty comfortably. Uh, and we're going to go into that in just a second. Before that, let me switch to the definition that I am using for this uh, about what it is B-roll. So it's, I'm going to read it out because we do have people who are listening, not watching. Shots executed separate from your main interview or presentation, which are typically used to provide story context, fix story problems, and or make an editor's job easier. And I want to highlight that, make an editor's job easier. There is nothing more annoying than having to craft a story and having no way 
to stitch things together. And my classic example of that, if I'm speaking, if I have a speaker and I'm shooting them and they say something and then they cough and they continue on, particularly if their head changes position or something between those two things and you have to cut out the cough, you get this thing called a jump cut and it's pretty common and it's actually become kind of a style now. But one classic solution for that is to do a cutaway shot that distracts the audience for a moment and you see this constantly in the interview shows. Once you understand this, you will realize how powerful this technique is because you can literally make it into a time machine. If uh, an interviewee says something in the beginning and then has a divergence and, and talks about something else and then comes back and gives you a nice conclusion to the shots, to the, to the commentary that happened earlier, using a cutaway, a shot of perhaps the interviewer just nodding and like listening, allows you to collapse those two divergent things into one thought stream and really increases comprehension for your audience. So that's kind of one of the traditional uses for B-roll, a cutaway shot. And again, we see this all the time on the big news shows. I'm going to cut to uh, some things that I grabbed off the internet from a CBS 60 Minutes show. This was Ina Garten doing an interview. Uh, and I just want you to, I, I'm going to play a little of it. I don't think you can hear it. I think it's just going to be video, but that's okay. Because we're watching for uses of cutaways and B-roll in this. And I'm going to play just a little bit and then stop just in case the bots are going to be watching here. Uh, so here she is. And I hit play. And so you're seeing the beginning of this. Now, there is a voiceover for this. Uh, the correspondent is narrating what she's doing as she gets ready for this. And now we're finally in the interview itself. So this is a live piece. She's talking about the topic that she is explaining to us. And then suddenly you get a little tiny cutaway of her. Why? That is a classic use of B-roll. The she was talking about one thing. There was probably some little glitch in there. They cut to a quick shot of the interviewer to cover that gap in the in the piece. Let's go back. And she's she's now gone back into classic B-roll. If you could hear this, um, it's still the correspondent describing her life and what she has done. But you're seeing shot after shot that talks about and illustrates what she's speaking about, but that is not live shot. Now we're back to the interviewer. A quick little soundbite from her and a B-roll of the first person, right? And now we're back to the interviewer. And these shots back and forth drive pace. They drive emotion. They drive mood. You're, you're looking at how she's listening to her and how engaged she is, which is another aspect that people sometimes fail to think about the emotional temperature of how you do these kind of things. You know, that laugh tells the audience she's engaged with this subject. She's interested in what she's hearing. And these are some of the things that as a director, you're paying attention to as you're watching a program. As you're watching, it all looks so seamless. And you're just engaged in the story and you're getting information out of this all the time. But if you were to go back and analyze that, and I did for this little interview piece, and I'm going to put a little labor down here, a label in the bottom left, which shots are our B-roll and which shots are actual exposition. And look at the number of B-roll shots versus the number of actual exposition shots. That's B-roll. This is B-roll. This is B-roll. And it's just 
separate from what the audio the, that the viewer is watching. Here's camera one's first shot. Now she's going to speak for just a second. This is a cutaway from camera two, but she didn't say anything. Here's a jump cutaway, this little going from the wide shot to a short shot. More B-roll, more B-roll. Again, you're listening to something that is not the sound happening at the same time these shots are happening. This is just chock full of a really intelligent and well-created use of B-roll shots. We're back to the camera interview. This is a cutaway. She didn't speak during that, so they could have taken that little nodding shot from anywhere in the interview. Now we're back to live actuality with her talking. We're back to another cutaway shot. We're back to camera one. You can see how much time and effort the editor has put into making this visually interesting by specifically letting her live actualities be a part of this to help her tell the story, but also to provide for the audience all the rest of this rich context by seeing how someone is reacting to her, to see how they're all together. And it just, it's a very warm and engaging process. And it all happens because B-roll was executed brilliantly for that. Uh, go watch this if you, if you want to. It's on the CBS website. And you will see how powerful B-roll can be at engaging an audience. So it's really worth studying. And one of the things I wanted to bring up here is you didn't just see one kind of B-roll shot. You saw a variety right? It was main interview used as actuality, a talking person. But you also saw some of those shots used as B-roll for the advantage of helping the editor cut away to the shot of the interviewee or the interviewer when the other one was actually talking on screen. And this kind of thing happens all the time. This is about a minute and a half's worth of coverage. And I counted, I think, think, uh, 18 separate shots of B-roll in that minute and a half. And I think that's pretty typical and pretty common. Uh, B-roll is one of the primary building blocks of video communications today. And to study it, to pay attention to the different ways it can be used, makes a huge difference in how compelling and engaging your every single program you do is going to be. Alex? Talk to us a little bit about it. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. So typically in, in, the, in the world that I work in, at least, we don't really consider the multiple cameras as B-roll. We, we, we consider those as, you know, multi-cam. So they're cam A, cam B, cam C, um, you know, that we have there. What we usually define when we say we want to have, and, and just a different definition of it. I mean, I think that your definition is fine. I mean, it's, it's valid. It's just we think about it. When we think about B-roll, we think about those close-ups and the extras and all the things that, when you show up at a location, um, a lot of times it's the stuff that is what we would consider kind of non sequitur, but related. So it's not part of the interview. It is it is all the the other things at the location. So um, a lot of times, you know, obviously we, we the thing you want to think about with be with the with, with what I'm defining as B roll is uh, is you you make a list of the things that you need. I need to show a car coming up. I need to show people working on this thing. A lot of times, you know, for instance, we might want to. I was doing one where we were talking about how silk gets produced, right? So we have someone, um, we were in Cambodia shooting a bunch of footage. Now, what I did first is actually, um, I went through and I, I, this was because of availability. 
I went through and shot every step of the silk production process from the from the little worms and how they're d- done to you know the silk and the little baskets and and then the the weaving of those and then the creating of the of the cloth and so we worked we worked through all of those things um, and we looked at what we had we made lists of things that were there. Then we did an interview. So we have somebody in the facility, the stuff's behind them, they're talking about the process. Um, and we interview that. And to Bill's point, we definitely interviewed a wider shot and then a close-up shot for exactly the reason that Bill was talking about is that I want to be able to cut back and forth and cut around things without it looking like a, like a jump shoot, uh, cut. But rarely do I have to do that if I have enough B-roll. When you don't see a lot of B-roll from the location, or about something. When you see a lot of cutting back and forth between the interviewer and the interviewee, when you see close-ups and wides going back and forth, it means they ran out of footage. Because like, if you have the footage that describes what they're talking about, you put it in. <laughs> you know, like so, so the uh, because it adds a lot of production value, and it basically you're using that B-roll typically. In the perfect world, you're using that B-roll to further illustrate what they're talking about. Um, a great example of that, in in my opinion, is looking at pretty much anything that Ken Burns does. He uses stills as B-roll, but um, and and video and other things like that. But you barely see the interviewees. The interviewees pop in so that you you get a connection to them, and there's an emotional moment that, that what Bill was talking about. But everything else is graphics that illustrate gra- graphics, video, stills that illustrate what that person is talking about is it bring you know makes it more real for you and using that visual medium to do that. So a lot of times we'll do where we try to cover as best we can. The in a perfect world we do the interviews first. We then go back and go get B-roll second. A lot of times you can't do that. Um, but but when you can, what we do in, a, in when when we, when we have that, we'll schedule an interview at a location if it's not too far from us or we're not traveling or whatever. And we will do the set, do do all the interviews that we want. They we do a rough assembly of the, those interviews, and then we do storyboards. And when I say storyboards, I mean like I just want to make sure that people think storyboards like they're like they hired an artist. It's more like if you think about the frame here, like this. It's like I need a person who is attaching to. They're grabbing onto the handle and pulling it down. You know, that's I mean. It's that kind of storyboard, <laughs> like slightly more than this that you put in. And what you do is you you put these in as fast as you can. Now, what I do is I will do that in Keynote. So I will I will go into Keynote while I'm watching. I'll open it up on, I, on my iPad. I build like 40 or 50 slide, blank slides so I can just swipe to the next one. And I'm watching the video and I'm writing, I'm drawing a sketch and I put a little annotation at the bottom of like, this is what I'm looking for. And I draw that sketch. I then insert all of those into, like, at a keynote, I export them all out as JPEGs. I then go into Final Cut, and I just go, and I put them all over top, and I see how they cut and everything else. And so I have an idea of what I need for that B-roll. Then I go to the facility and shoot it, and I shoot all of those things, and I just fill those in. And that's, by the way, one of the things I'm really excited about with Final Cut is to be able to be able to go in there and shoot the stuff and potentially <laughs> stick it right in, you know, and, and while I'm on site and just see what that looks like. Because we do that with laptops a lot. You know, we'll capture stuff. We'll we'll go to lunch, load it all into the into the thing, look at it. Is that what we do? We have what we need, and then walk away. Um, now, a lot of times we don't get that luxury. We, we're going to go in and we're going to interview. And what we do is sometimes we we're doing the walkthrough before and after. A lot of it has to do with the interviewees availability um but we'll go out and shoot everything we think that we're going to need based on research and then we're going to um 
do the interview. And sometimes people are writing notes of a couple extra things that they'd like to see. And then we go try to find those, you know, try to get those um, before we leave, especially if it's a remote location, we only have limited access. Um, but you do want to ask, you want to get all the permissions like, hey, we're doing an interview, but can I get access to the machine room or the um, this kind of station, or I want to capture some stuff there. And so those are all things that we that we try to um, we try to grab while we're there. You can't take too much B-roll. <laughs> it's impossible. You just run out of time, you know, but you want to take all the B-roll you possibly can. Um, always take it longer than you expect to need it. Um, the biggest problem we have with B-roll is people doing this thing where they shoot and then they pull away, you know, or they shoot and stop and they only capture the action. You want three to four seconds of head and tail. So three to four seconds before or after you need something and then just shoot something uncomfortably long. You know, if someone's working, I did, we did another one where we were shooting B-roll for uh, fish being processed, you know, which is a really rough thing to shoot in just in case you're wondering. But but uh, the, the, the biggest problem with it is that the lenses, it's really cold on the outside or it's really warm on the outside, very warm uh, where they process fish and then very cold. Uh, in in there, and so your lenses all get fogged up, and you know, there's all this uh. condensation. So so you have to kind of deal with that that process with the lenses, especially when you're using big ingenue lenses and a red camera. And anyway, so we're shooting all this stuff, and you just shoot like someone's doing something. The the, the temptation is, oh, they're they're um you know they're you know they're starting to cut the fish up, and they're doing it one after the other. You know, like it's, you know, it's thousands of, they process, you know, 400,000 cans of fish, you know, a day or whatever. So there's a lot of stuff going through. Your temptation is to capture it for a couple seconds and then move on. Instead, we would capture it for minutes, you know, the same operation over and over and over again. And once we thought we had it, we change angles, we move around, we grab other, you know, we, we do slow moves, we do all, you know, push-ins. So you get, you get always get what you need out of the B-roll and then start to get creative and find close-ups and odd things and everything else. And again, you do, if, if you start getting really pushing that hard and, and gathering as much data as you can, um, knowing that you can never get to the end, you'll never have, you'll always have a shot that you didn't. So you you want to minimize the chances of that by just shooting, 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 shooting. Um, we had like two or three crews shooting, you know, for some of these. And just gathering as much data as you can, and then you have to have somebody log it. And that's where Final Cut becomes really useful is if you have an assistant that can log all that data and log exactly what's there, wow, an editor can just rock through um, putting stuff together because they have, if, if, the, if the metadata is there in the database, um, you know, it's really easy to just type a couple things and stuff, everything that you need shows up, you drag it in, um, you clip it and move on. Mitch. All good uh, comments and uh, points, uh, Alex and Bill. Um, it's interesting. I mean, how do you how do you exactly quantify what B-roll is? I, I usually refer to it as a temporal relocation of shooting because if you're doing an engineer discussing a process, invariably somebody is in the background taking notes and writing down a list of things that you need to cover after you've done the interview. So it's sort of times shifted slightly um, and the B-roll becomes very important. Another kind of B-roll is the kind we used to when we were we were young and we didn't have a lot of money and we only had one camera, was that we'd make one camera look like multiple cameras, particularly like in an interview, sort of like you see on newscast when the uh, interview goes out and then they cut away and the interviewer is going like this or asking a question or they're showing their hands or a close-up. Um, those are just covering the jump cuts that we just mentioned uh, in a different fashion. Uh, 60 minutes that we just saw that example of, 
you can be sure that that was all being done at the same time with two different cameras. So I bet they didn't do uh, that much uh, B-roll shooting. And the other uh, situation is when I do have that shot list after the interview has been done, um, I always save a little extra time. I'll just tell the cameraman, shoot everything until we have to leave. Because invariably there's some kind of like a montage or some kind of music uh, piece that has to be done. So it's saved my collective, whatever you want to call it, uh, many, many times having that B-roll in the can and uh, certainly well logged so you know where to go for it. Yeah, it was interesting to me when I was watching that clip to think, oh, they've used part of the synchronous AB camera interviews functionally as B-roll because when they cut away to the reporter from Ina, I don't know for sure that that laugh happened at the same time at all. And a clever editor will realize that and say there was a better reaction shot at eight minutes into than the one that she actually got here. Let's make this look even better by taking that asynchronous shot and using it as B-roll. And that's kind of one of the things I'm doing. Also, we'll talk a little bit after Alex about the tonality of the shots. But Alex, dive in more. Yeah, news organizations tend to want to keep it live. So they tend to want to have the same reaction there because they get caught, you know, not doing that. And yeah, so news, a lot yes. of times, so a news organization will be pretty careful about making sure that they were synchronous and they can prove it if they got pushed into it. I will say for marketing, uh, a lot of times to Mitch's point, we've done ones where we've, uh, or and to Bill's point, we've done ones where we do the whole interview and we only had one camera and we turn it around to the, to the interviewer and we just go, look like you're agreeing, look like you're not sure, look like you're concerned, look like you just, they just said something amazing. And we, and they do all these things. And it's really funny because it looks fine. Like if they don't go overboard, it looks, it looks great, but it's hilarious to watch if you're the one that shot it. Because, you know, because you, you have that discontinuity is in your head and you're just like, oh, that's just absurd. And then it ruins everything when you watch other people's news. It, it kind of ruins your experience because you've taken the, the, the red pill. Yeah, it's funny, you know, people love, I'm, I'm, I didn't know much about Ina Garden, I don't watch her show, but my wife is a big fan of hers, but I didn't know much about her. But watching this thing on CV, CBS, I started to understand the tonality that they managed to achieve in this piece about her made me think, this is someone fun. And some of the quotes she had in there about, um, I think she started working with Martha Stewart's organization, and Martha at some point went, you've got to stop. You can't make that comment because you're eating. You know, you've tasted this, and your mouth's full, and nobody talks with their mouth full. And she said, well, why not? We're in a kitchen, this environment. That's what I want my show to be. I want it to be real. I want it to be alive. And it's that tonality that has snapped me in shooting B-roll because if the interviewee is saying something, you know, in his concerned and I'd use a cutaway shot and they're not looking concerned, it, it's, it's useless to me. I need to match the tonality of, of what they're saying with their natural reaction at the time. And Alex was exactly correct. If you're in a news kind of circumstance, you want the authentic reaction that that interviewer was having at the same time. Now, the interviewer can be out of sync. You know, at the moment that question is asked where you would cut away to the B-roll, that interviewer may be looking at their notes and may not be engaging with the camera at all. So is that fair to give the reaction shot of the <laughs> reporter disengaged because they just happened to happen at that moment. Uh, B-roll is more subtle, I think, than a lot of people know. The one thing that I am sure of, though, is that when you're watching the program back, 
if a B-roll cutaway shot takes the audience out of the flow of peace, it's a terrible B-roll shot. What you're trying to do is keep people engaged. You want them, you know, your job here as an interviewer of this person is to extract from them the information that's going to help the audience understand the subject. Everything you do that is cohesive with that goal is usually a good thing to do. And you just want to make sure that if you're doing a cutaway, you have to have at least a reason for it. Maybe it's because the audience needs to understand how that person is reacting to this. Or it may be that there was that cough and you literally needed to keep the audience from being distracted by the cough. So you needed some sort of cutaway that was cohesive with your piece to let the audience see something else. I went back and analyzed those Ina Garden cutaways, and I could find at least four of them where I'm sure they were moving two divergent pieces of content together and using the cutaway as a traditional way to keep the audience engaged and to make a, a jump cut disappear. So all of those things are part of the toolbox of editors that we use all the time. Uh, I think uh, we probably hit that. Uh, it's time that we were where we're supposed to be to move into the questions. So your questions are always useful. We've got a good group of them. So Al, uh, Mitch, what do we got? First up is Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand. Wellington, uh, excuse me, Adrian asked, for some years, I've used Cinematch with Resolve to match grades between A and B roll cameras. Does the panel have experience with any similar tools? Alex, start us off. X-Rite is your friend. So this is a pocket X-Rite. Um, it's a color. This is the color checker passport. And what's important is that this passport is known by Resolve. So you you throw this into every clip that you want to match. You just throw this little, and it's this, it's typically this screen here, this one, this one, this top one here. You just, you just, literally hold it up like this or you set it somewhere but you want you don't want it to be you want it to be in the same light of what you're about to shoot and you'll get used to doing this for for real b-roll you'll you'll do this over and over and over you'll just hold this up or someone will set it there and then they'll start shooting you you can shoot the same environment typically and it's not going to need it but you'll use every new environment you'll throw this this little passport up in front and what you can do then is you can draw you can pull this little square in resolve around this and it will it will it'll put a sample on every one of these. Uh, you got to cut to me. Like don't don't do that. Like sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to explain something. So um, so anyway, so you're you're gonna pull the square. Um, you're gonna pull this. You're gonna pull a square around this, and then you're gonna have the sam the samples will appear on that square, and then you hit match, and it will take that and correct for it immediately. Um, and uh, and so the, anyway, so that's the. Um, uh, that's the advantage of, of using this, but I would, you, you don't want to shoot anything without one of these if you're doing it for post. Um, and so this is a must have in your, in your thing. If you're going to, if you're going to cut something out, if you want things to match from multiple places, uh, it, it doesn't do it perfectly. It does it, but it does do really a really good job. And oftentimes you're just doing minor changes after that. Yeah. On, on multicam shoots, those are incredible tools. We use them with Final Cut and other things as well. But uh, I find I'm shooting more and more just on my phone and I don't find the, the them as useful because it does such a great job of computational setting of exposure. It does okay. Like I mean, it it, yeah. it it can definitely get pretty far off if it gets the wrong lighting somewhere. So, I, you know, I, I recommend 
if at a, in a professional level, if you're shooting B-roll, you got to have a color checker that you're throwing in there that you can match and make sure it's one of the color checkers that, and this is the smallest one. There, there are, you know, there are bigger ones. There's, um, I don't know if I have, you know, there's DSC I think Labs. Mitch was holding up one of the larger ones just yeah, a but, I mean, there's ago. But there's also different styles. Yeah, absolutely. You can find those styles in in the color page inside of Resolve, and you just want to make sure you have one of them. But this will work just fine. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next question. And it's uh, coming in from me. My question is, what percentage of close-ups versus wide shots do you use for your B-roll, typically? Alex? It's how it feels. Like, there's no—I don't think that there's uh, any—and if you're talking about close-ups versus wide shots of people, uh, is whatever it feels— So. What I'm looking for when I'm going close up and wide in a, in a mechanical way, I'm looking for how it, uh, the impact. So I'm trying not to just cut close up and wide because I'm covering something. That's what B-roll is for. You know, B-roll, like, I mean, I guess what I would say, the way I define B-roll is something other than the people that are in the interview for me is B-roll. And so I'm trying to, if I'm trying to paper over something that they're saying, I'm using B-roll to do two things. One is to paper over a problem. Number two is to illustrate what they're talking about. You know, so look at, I mean, if you, if you look again at, um, you know, if, if you look at a, a um, I guess the, the best example would be, again, Ken Burns. Look at how often he actually cuts the person talking. There's a lot of people talking a lot of the time. But he doesn't cut to them very often. He cuts to them to set that style. But but I think that when I'm interviewing someone, I'm going to cut wide when they're kind of setting something up. But when they're making a point, I want to cut close. And so my close and wide should be driven by the emotion of the video. And then my, my B-roll is there to, again, paper over things when needed and also to illustrate what they're saying. And I want as much B-roll as I can possibly have. If I can have them almost never showing up, that's what I want. You know, because that's going to make it a much more compelling video for the viewer, typically. Typically, what they're going to get, they'll watch longer. Our average view time, when we, when we watch the data on the back, they're going to hang on longer if we're showing them more things. The only time you want to hang with someone is if they're actually showing something, uh, but and if they have emotion. But another one is good, like if you look at Fog of War, uh, Into the Void, you know, those are ones where there's interviews and there's stuff happening. And you'll see, you know, like Fog of War is... Um, a uh, perfect film when it comes to documentaries, as far as I'm concerned, of 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 how to illustrate um, the use of interview versus versus B-roll. Mitch, yeah, I think you touched on something that uh, resonated with me. That uh, ILM special that ran on Disney Plus, where they did all the interviews, um, they were cutting yeah. away to like the hands or uh, a profile shot or something else. Um, it wasn't wasn't showing a specific B-roll. But I thought of it as B-roll because it was done to heighten the uh, emotion of the shot. And I think it was so well done. It's a good example. When I think what, what I would say is when we get started, we're using it for uh, correction and paper edit, you know, to paper over things and everything else. When we really have the the time and the budget and the everything else to really get going, we're talking about using every clip is there to, to change how the viewer feels. And that's, you know, oftentimes we don't have the budget or time or resources to do that. What you saw with Light and Magic is another perfect example of using B-roll where they're just touching on that. And then then you're seeing lots and lots and lots of, of archive footage, lots of other things that they're showing. Um, and again, I think that the, the more you can get to to illustrating what the person's talking about, the the better, the, the, the longer, the more compelling it's going to be for the viewer. 
And since we're talking about that, I'm going to go back to this shot because there was a perfect example of that. There is a cut coming up right after where I've parked this frame. And you will see they've gone to, from the wider shot of her to a close-up at an immaculately perfect moment. It punches up her reaction to the question. Let me just play it here. Boom. And you saw almost the look of surprise on her face at the same time. It it really was a, a brilliant cut. Whoever the editor was this, I, I saw that and I went, oh my gosh, you're really good at what you're doing. Because he knew it was a moment of power in what she was saying. And he punched to her at exactly the right place and emphasized her reaction to what was said, which was engaging. Mitch? Yeah, if I'm posting a show at 1080, uh, I'm definitely going to shoot it at 4K. And I could do something similar to what you just saw by punching in on the 4K footage that's uh, at 1080 because you have a lot more real estate to deal with. And that helps you cover the jump cut um, and also adds emphasis to what uh, what they're saying. So I don't know if you'd call that B-roll, would you? Well, here's the thing, though. I don't think this was synchronous because I looked at this cut because it just struck me as, wow, that was a really nice example of an immaculate cut. It helped the story. It got us close to her at the right moment when she was punching up an idea emotionally. And I went back, and I think this is asynchronous. I don't think the B-roll shot is it exactly the next thing. I think they've removed some frames or some time or whatever. Yes, it's contiguous in terms of what she's saying, but I don't think it's a straight thing. Um, I, you know, we'll never know because good editing is something you hardly ever notice. That's the point of the editing is to present the emotions and the content without getting you to think, oh, that's jarring. They've done something there. Um, I, that was to me, a really fine example of that. Let's go on to our next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado has a question. When using historical film and video, do you try to color grade to maintain VHS, 8mm, etc. styles to differentiate vintage from contemporary content in a documentary? Mitch, start us off. I, sometimes I'll do that because you got to somehow excuse the fact that you're showing an inferior format or ratio against uh, something that's far better. The other thing is that sometimes uh, special effects are used to do a flashback. Um, if you're doing a flashback scene, you need to somehow not confuse the what's happening currently by adding some kind of color grade to give it an otherworldly look. So, uh, yeah, I, all of those things are possible. Alex. Yeah, color color oftentimes is a communication of where you are. If you look at the matrix is a great example of it where when you're in the matrix, you don't notice it, but everything's a little green. And when you're in it, it's much warmer when you're out of the matrix. And and in the same way, telling people where they are by watching that footage is, is I think, a, a really powerful uh, storytelling device. Yeah, they also use that to huge effect in Stranger Things when you're in the upside down world. It just looked, felt different. They even had floaty little things in there that kind of signal to you, you're not in Kansas anymore, so to speak. Let's go to the next question. Tommy Shantz, St. Paul, Minnesota, asking, using metadata would seem to be a good start for cataloging your B-roll. What practices and resources does one use to access this data and keep everything in order and easily retrievable? Alex. 
I mean, a lot of that for those, I, I will say that, I mean, I talk, we talk a lot about what editor to use for what, and I will say that even though it's not, a lot of people still use Avid and other things for documentaries, I think that Final Cut is the best thing for documentaries because of the way the metadata gets, that gets put in. Now you can use, there is other things you can use on site, taking notes of what you're doing. Um, it is still good practice to do things like a slate in front if you're going to do it. Now, a lot of times you're just capturing B-roll. If you're capturing important B-roll, you may want to have annotations that are on there. Um, but most of the time with B-roll, we're so fast and furious that we're capturing everything we possibly can. And you just need someone to sit there and go through it all. Sometimes it's the editor themselves. And sometimes it's an assistant um, that's going to go in and add the notes that are necessary. And usually that, I, I find that that's usually done in Final Cut. You know, I don't know if Bill has another way of doing it, but it's that's usually the locking of the metadata is done straight in the app. For anything longer than a couple of minutes, it is the one thing about Final Cut that will, I will never move away from it too far because of the power of... And, and the thing in Final Cut is it's called range-based tagging. So you pull in some uh, B-camera stuff or whatever, you, you know, a, a shot, and you can do three things to it. And I do this kind of as I start to look at every piece of footage. You can reject stuff. So, you know, here's the slate. Here's all the stuff beforehand. And now somebody says, all right, action. And then something happens that I want. Everything before that, if I had a way to just get it out of my eyes so I never have to look at it before, well, that's exactly what reject does in Final Cut. Anything that you don't think is going to be germane to your actual work of creating the program, get rid of it. Then, as you got down to the stuff that's useful, you have to organize it. And that is applying these tagged ranges in Final Cut. All the other analysts have ways to do this, subclips and other things. But that was, I think, one of Randy's brilliances, Randy Bilos, the guy who wrote it, in, in connecting it to a database and saying, you can drag out a range on the clip, and then you can add not just a tag, but as many tags as you want to this range of frames. So if it's a three shot and I've got the cook, the butler, and the maid all in the shot, that range gets all three of those tags, cook, butler, and maid, and maybe drawing room, and maybe evening, and maybe whatever. So you can stack keywords on top of things. And then you go on and you do the next scene and you apply one or more keywords to that. Maybe next you have the close-up shot of the cook, so you just tag that with cook. Then afterwards, as you're starting to assemble the pieces of your program into something, you, you say to yourself, I need another shot of the cook. You just type CO and the cook keyword comes up and you click on that and it displays visually everything that the cook is in. And that includes the shot where the cook is solo, but it also includes all the shots where the cook is with other people. So suddenly you have an instant way to dive into your footage and access the things that you need at the moment you need them. And to be honest, that's, you know, I seriously think that every hour I spend doing keywording probably drives three or four hours of saving when it comes time to actually assemble the program. It keeps me from getting lost. I don't have to stop and think about things. As soon as a thought comes to mind, I can just find those repositories of clips and footage that are most likely to solve my problem and move on. That, to me, is one of the central brilliances of the way they do it. Now, good editors do the same kinds of things through other mechanisms in all. Don't ever think that you can't organize and find shots the same way with Avid or Premiere or whatever. But there is nothing as uniquely, brilliantly targeted to do this sifting, sorting, 
and bringing to your to your playhead footage, B-roll, and others than uh, that Final Cut system. It's just pretty fabulous for that. All right, let's. I, I've talked too much about that. Let's move on to the next question. Walt Palmer from Lewis, Delaware, asking, using a camera slider for the B camera is effective, but only when there are foreground props to enhance the motion. Is there a rule of thumb for slider speed? Mitch Hill. I would, uh, I would question whether or not that's actually a B-roll shot, Walter, but you're correct to point out that you need a foreground background in most cases to get the effect. And as far as speed goes, usually something slower than real time because it's sort of otherworldly. So if you're using it as a master shot, you're setting the location or the place, or you're doing a time lapse in order to show time has passed. Um, and if you're doing an interview, you got to be careful because you can't cut inside that uh, jib move or uh, slider move. Alex. Yeah, the yeah, you can have stuff before or after. I mean, or in front or behind um to have that that look. Um I actually see very little done in front. I mean, it's not something that 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 we that we do um is to have something to include in the front. I, I get what you're saying though. There's sometimes when you when you have those shots that are really cool with something in the front. And when I take pictures, a lot of times I do that. I put people out of focus, you know, um that are there. Uh anyway, so um uh so but I, I would say that I see slider shot. Slider shots were really popular about 10 years ago, and they've kind of dropped away. Like, I don't see a lot of slider shots now. A lot, I don't see a lot of move, moving shots when people are being, are talking. Um, it's, you know, people are, have gotten kind of in the high end, have kind of gotten back to the basics. <laughs> so, so they just, you know, they're cutting, they're adding, you're much be better off adding more B-roll than trying to suss that up. Um, and I and I don't know exactly what happened to it. I mean, again, I think that there is, um, I think part of it is, is that a, one thing that is incredible for B-roll, by the way, are some kind of stabilized shot. So whether that's an Osmo, I always, you know, when I'm shooting B-roll, I have an Osmo for my phone, for my phone, but, you know, or, or, or the, um, you know, uh, you know, any kind of the larger ones for the larger cameras. Um, my brother used to, before he was doing a lot of film work, was doing tons of B-roll with a Steadicam. You know, so going through someone's office, going through their workplace, going through a factory, going um, in the outside, stabilized shots are unbelievable. The other thing is drone shots. So drone shots, stabilized shots are incredible, of incredible production value, um, you know, to grabbing, you know, the stuff that needs to get done. So so I would highly, um, you know, look at that. But, but when we talk about interviews, I don't see a lot of movement anymore in the high end, in the top you know, one or two percent. Um, I think that there's still folks doing it, but I don't. I don't see as much of it. It's kind of not as as popular as it was maybe a decade ago. Yeah, it's it's fashion. Things come in and out of fashion. And I agree with Alex that I'm seeing more gimbal shots, particularly even on the low end, because an iPhone on a little DJI gimbal or something like that gets you these kind of possibilities. And I know I've been shooting at an event or something like that, and somebody walks by me, and that momentary occlusion of the camera and then the person walking out is a great action cut potential if you're kind of helping the audience move through the story visually. So let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, if you have a B camera on set, do you need a common time code source to link both the A and the B cameras? Alex. Need is a big word. <laughs> <laughs> so, so need need is a big word. If, if you're feeding raw, if you're feeding the the audio, let's say out of your field recorder into both of your cameras, uh, the ability to get them resynced takes like a minute. Like it's it's really not that big of a deal. That said, I will I will lock those. I will um, 
I, I will jam both cameras every single time I do it because it's way easier. So it's 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 way nicer to have you know um, have that all, have everything jam uh, jam synced so that they have the right time code so that you just drop them in and they 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 are they are where they are. Um, so so I I wouldn't say that I need them. I've probably done a solid half of the projects that I've ever done have not had time code. <laughs> it's like, it's just not, but especially if you're doing two, uh, if you're doing um, your sound, if you're recording on, let's say a sound devices or a zoom device, then time code becomes really important because you're trying to tie all of that audio back to the video. So the two video sources, do I need it? Maybe, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, I wouldn't, I guess, I wouldn't say, oh, I can't do this project or we're going to delay the project by an hour because I'm trying to figure out how to how to do it. Would I do I use it on everything that I do now? 100 <laughs> like percent. So so we, you know, we 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 uh, jam everything all the time. And uh, I tend to want to use um, I haven't used it for everything, but recently I've really gotten much more. I mean, I've gone on and off about it, depending on budgets and time and everything else. But a smart slate is useful, too, because you point both those cameras at that smart slate and you have a visual reference of the uh of that as well. Mitch, your thoughts? Yeah, what Alex just said, it makes a lot of sense. Um, if it's a type of a, a program where there's a coincidence between the A and the B role, obviously the time code makes it easier in post because if you need to cover a shot or you have a problem, you just know, hey, I'm just going to find the matching time code on the B roll and uh, there it is. And and what I would say is that for B-roll, we don't think about time code at all. Like, I don't think about time code at all when I'm shooting what, what I would consider pure B-roll, which is I'm wandering around and taking a bunch of photo, taking a bunch of stuff. That time code doesn't mean anything to me. But when I'm doing cameras that I need to sync back to sound or, or cameras that I need to sync to each other, then I want, I want time code. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, asking, make a jump cut disappear? Is B-roll a concept lost on today's editors? <laughs> Alex. I will admit, I was doing a project and uh, and I, I covered everything with B-roll. Like I every edit that needed to be done, every jump, what would have been a jump cut was all covered with an edit. And I had the client ask me like, where are the jump cuts? Like, where are the, like, we want to be, we want to look, this to look more like YouTube. And I was like, it was just, it was so sad. It was like, part of me died. You know, like, like I was like, we had masterfully like covered up all of that stuff and it looked really good and it was seamless. Like it was to the beat and it was, everything was working and everything else. And and then they were like, where are the jump cuts that, that make it look more like a YouTube video? And I was like, oh, okay. It's kind of like when they, when everyone wanted to make their stuff look, no one, when, the, when log first came out on people's cameras, YouTubers didn't know that, or the, whoever was doing it didn't know that that's not the way it's supposed to look. And they had it like the film look was, they left it, they, they didn't put a LUT on it and they just had the raw log that they were putting up and that was a look for a while and it was really hard to go through that phase. Um, anyway, so, but but I think, I mean, I think that people are very accustomed to seeing jump cuts and you can use them for effect, you know, to add intensity or to bounce things around. And I, so I, I respect that, but, but I, uh, Really, I really not like it's. It's. I think I'm too old, and I just it hurts me every time we. I see it every time I create when I watch jump jump cuts. I have to admit, doesn't bother me because like eighty percent of what I watch is YouTube, so I, I'm used to it. So I it doesn't bother me to watch it. It just bothers me to make it. Like when I when I have to do it, I'm like, oh. Okay. This era's shaky cam, uh, Mitch. Uh, I agree with Alex. It's an age thing. Um, the way we were doing stuff, unlike Kramer on Seinfeld, like. <laughs> When I see one, it makes me jump and bolt and sometimes like, 
grow up in my mouth. It's just not my way of doing things. But I, again, I, I don't mind watching it. I, I watch it all the time. I see so many, you know, again, the vast majority of what I watch is YouTube. Uh, so I'm I'm accustomed to it, but I find myself when I try to edit it, I, I it just bothers me. So I, I, I have a hard time, uh, hard time doing it. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael is here with a question. Would Final Cut Pro or Resolve provide more effective tools for cataloging and tagging footage? I'm thinking of grouping B-roll that fits a certain topic together. <sighs> I'm not going to comment. Alex, do it for me. <laughs> we spoke to it. We spoke to it. Final Cut's the best at this. Um, I would say, you know, I think that it's the, it, it, it uh, it's very, very effective at tagging footage. Um, I do think that Resolve and Premiere have other good tools, and there's tools in Avid to do a lot of this as well. They're just, as someone who's worked in all of those platforms, the delta is pretty different. You know, like Final Cut versus the other ones, it's just much more seamless. You find yourself going through a lot more of it. You put more data into it. it this is where it, uh, again, I spend about half my time in Resolve now and about half my time in Final Cut. And But if someone said you're going to build a documentary, um, I, I would definitely cut it in Final Cut. Well, and, and I think it goes all the way back. One of the original things 10 years ago when Final Cut was developed is they gave you three dashboard tags, favorite, reject, and unrate. And just the application of those made editing so much, uh, made editing complex content into a system way easier than I would ever imagine. And they've kept that up through there. So it's it's a very powerful concept. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana asked, how is B-roll different than a cutaway? Uh, they're related, Alex. I, I, yeah, they're very closely related. <laughs> they're, they're, they're cousins, you know, like, and so I, I, I think that uh, they're almost the same thing. A B, so again, and there's another question by Roscoe from the next one. I really define the B-roll as the extra stuff that we shoot, you know, not the, not the multiple angles, but the extra stuff that we shoot. Now, sometimes we use that as a primary piece and sometimes we use it as a cutaway. Typically, when I say we're going to use a cutaway, we're trying to get that as a specific, I'm using B-roll. and But I think, again, I because I don't define the multiple angles of an interview as B-roll, personally, I, that's not how I look at it. I would consider the cutaway to their hands, the cutaway, I would consider like cutting to their hands, their feet. Um, a side shot of them, the the reporter, I would consider all of those cutaways that I'm using as a device to get around an edit. So I, when I think of cutaways, usually I'm thinking about not adding to the, sometimes it can be adding to the visual nature, but but really adding to the pace or adding to the, I'm, I think of cutaways as a pace device and a glue device that I'm using to, to fix an edit or to in, increase intensity, decrease intensity, do those kinds of things. I look at, and this is again, all of us have our own personal views of this, but I view the B-roll as something that is illustrative. It's an illustrative thing that we couldn't get in the interview. So the B-roll is the the other stuff that we're, that isn't in the room where I'm doing an interview that is helping me illustrate what they're talking about. And sometimes that B-roll is added on top as a because it's necessary and it's it's driven by the conversation. And sometimes it's a cutaway, so I can fix something. <laughs> so, so, so it's so the so the cutaway I think is a bigger device, and the B roll is a is a is a subset of that. Uh, or the the two of them can overlap a lot. I would say that they, you know, if, if if we were talking about them, they are you know they're this right. They're they're almost they live in a space together a lot. But some 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 of the cutaway is not a B roll, and some B roll is not a cutaway. 
you know, it's so that's the good Venn that's, diagram. That's how I would look at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let me give you, let me do a, a, the traditional one I used to do for my seminars for uh, Video Maker. Uh, imagine that I got to give up and give the Gettysburg Address when I go four score and seven years ago, our father's butt, <coughs> and I cough badly. And I go, oh, where was I? Brought forth on our continent. Now, I was looking to the left when I did the first line. And I was looking to the right when I did the second line. So if you cut out the cough, what happens? Classic jump cut. My head goes from here to there in one frame. So we don't like that. That looks unnatural. So if I have a nice shot of an American flag, I'm going to place that shot of the American flag either a little bit before or a little bit after that cut. So what they see is four score and seven years ago, our fathers, they are hearing consistency. The content is getting out and that flag cutaway fixes that moment in time that I had to cut out as an editor. So that's the classic use B-roll as a cutaway to fix and edit. Mitchell? Yeah, sometimes, and we should bring this up, uh, you don't have the ability to go to a B-shot, um, and you're stuck with a, an actual jump cut. Some software like Premiere will allow you to merge those two, uh, that cut, and sometimes, I'll just say sometimes, make a very passable edit uh, between two things that were slightly shifted um, but um, it, it's interesting just to point out that there are other op op opportunities. But as the previous question mentioned, um, you can use B-roll nowadays because it's the thing. Yeah, the, the same thing as Morph Cut and Final Cut. Yeah, that it, it works maybe 40% of the time to my satisfaction, which is nice. If you if it fixes the problem and you don't have to do a cutaway, great. The other options are to things like take that second shot and pop it up, as you saw in the Ina Garden interview. Uh, let's go to the next question. Roscoe's back from Madison, Indiana, with a question. What does the B in B-roll historically refer to? Yeah, I, I, you probably weren't here at the beginning of this, Roscoe. I kind of defined it. In the film days and early cameras, they would set up the camera and run a roll of film through the camera. And then that they, they those were very short. Often they would run multiple rolls of film because they didn't last very long. And then they would put another roll of film in the camera and go shoot these secondary shots that we're talking about to help tell the story. And that was the B roll. So you had the A roll for the primary shoot and the B roll for the secondary information. And that just kind of attached itself to it. Uh, Alex, you had more things to chat about? I believe that traditionally it was it was considered background <laughs> like the background role um uh but i don't know I, I think that that's what i that's what i'd heard in the past was that it was a it was considered you know it was it, was, it became supplementary like it was the background information that you needed the background inform you know the um stuff that you're grabbing onto yeah. mitch there are a lot of things that uh, we use today as terms for editing that were developed in the old film days that go way 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 back as you were referring to bill so um, it is indeed a, uh, a term that was uh, coined many, many years back. The other thing I just wanted to point out while we're on the subject, um, there is other names for B-roll, too, keep in mind. Um, in the old days of uh, shooting interviews for TV, we called it a reversal. Yeah, the, you know, the language of film has been developing for a long, long time. A lot of the old traditional terms are still active, uh, and they've come down the line, and they were useful, so they still are. There's a lot in the new era, though, of uh, discussion where the way we did things back when we were on flatbed editors or uh, early NLEs that didn't have the capabilities of today, uh, and some people... 
some of the language of the old days, there's some controversy about whether or not it's going to make this transition to the new world where everything sits in a computer in a hard drive and there are no necessary divisions other than the ones we imply on them as to which came, which shot came from camera A or camera B. It's still very useful, I mean, to be able to say, no, I need that angle. That angle was the A camera when we shot it last a week ago last Thursday. And so to have that camera A tag on something is very useful, uh, but isn't strictly necessary. And in I know particularly for me as an editor who edits more visually, I'm – less likely to type in, give me uh, camera two, than I am to glance up and see the angle that I want and click on that, and that'll load the keyword, and then I can find all the other ones. So it's interesting how our new tools kind of changes things as we go along. Uh, let's go to the next question. From Walt Palmer in Lewis, Delaware, um, is it proper to use B-roll of an interviewee as a cover shot? Example, interviewee is a farmer, cutaway is the farmer on his tractor. Uh, Alex, not only is it proper, it's suggested. <laughs> like it was so, so the more you can show the farmer as someone who grew up on a, on a farm and, and did that stuff, the more you can show if, if I'm interviewing a farmer, I'm going to find a beautiful place in either their farmhouse or in the barn or with something cows in the background or whatever it is. Uh, typically in the barn, if they've got a big barn, it's going to be great. It's going to have depth of field and you get some lighting in there and you're going to interview them and make it look great. And then you're going to show, shoot as much footage as they let you. And and again, with farmers, you want to shoot at sunrise when they're out there doing whatever, you know, getting the, getting things done, middle of the day, what are the, driving the tractor, putting stuff on the PTO shaft, you know, um, you know, uh, dealing with whatever. <laughs> always, there's always a cow somewhere that has a huge something growing on it that you have to puncture and push stuff out. Get that too. It's really, it's really good, good okay, camera work. <laughs> anyway, if I thought about all the things I did, surreal farm, farm, folks. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like you just you know throwing the betadine on it, and anyway, so um, so the uh, so you know, there's all these things you want to you want to try to capture that as much as you can that day. Um, and, uh, and, and then you're going to try to use as much as you can, uh, as little, you know, you want to hit the farm when the farmer has an emotional moment, when they're thinking about something and then saying it, that's when you're going to cut to them. But when they're just talking, fill that all up with this, this, um, you know, uh, incredible, uh, tapestry of, of stuff that you captured of them doing something, especially and the reason I'm just poking on this is because. Farmers oftentimes are doing things like they're not talking about things. It's not. It's it's much harder when you're talking about, um, you know, theory or philosophy or something like. Now, what do you put in there? But when you're talking about someone of action that's doing something, capture all that action and then throw it in to help to help really deepen the understanding that the viewer is going to have of their of their life and their work. And so anyway, I, I, so yeah, absolutely. Let's make make a short answer very very long, um, and get us to the bottom of the hour. Uh, the that that's what I would do. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, in that those Ina Garden uh, examples I gave you at the beginning of this, if you go back and watch that 60 Minutes, you're going to see a lot of this happening. You're going to see that uh, the piece that I used, there were four or five shots to establish mood, and that's not what the audio is talking about. It's talking about her life, and they're using essentially b-roll i mean you can you can classify it as that or not you can classify it as you know introductory shots or establishing shots these are all terms that we use in the industry to say at the beginning of my uh sequence here 
I need an establishing shot. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, it kind of orients the viewer. Here's where we are. Maybe it's a shot of the outside of the bar, and we're going to go in and watch the blues, blues musician play. I don't want everything to be inside the bar. I need that establishing shot to say, here's where we are, and here's where this is happening, and come on, join us as we go inside to enjoy the show. So all these terminologies have been around for a long time to help us do this. There is, you know, proper use of B-roll. It, it, the proper use is whatever helps you tell the story. And whether, you know, I'm just saying don't restrict your thinking to because I shot this as B-roll, it can't be the opening or it can't be the closing or it can't be something. If you have magic there, don't care about what it is. Care about how it works to tell the story. All right. Thank you for paying attention today. Uh, we've had a wonderful day. Thank you all for your questions uh, driving the show. We truly appreciate it. So many people to thank. This show does not happen every day without all the people. Uh, producers, particularly, I want to thank all of those of you who asked questions today that drove this show. Without your questions, the show doesn't exist. The panelists, thank you, guys. It's been a fabulous time having all this expertise arrayed to help people understand this. Uh, don't forget, after hours that is coming up oh wait a second am i forgetting of course i'm forgetting something I'm, <laughs> the back end crew the quiet army of people who put this together in the back end literally all over planet earth we thank you all it is an amazing job that you do each and every day of making this possible so if you've gotten any value uh out of office hours over the course of the past three years almost now uh it's because of all the people Working on all sides of this, all of you have helped make this possible. To lock traversal today, we've managed to cover 66,285 miles. That's 106,675 kilometers. If you were to lay bananas end to end and try to traverse the same places we've gone to get everybody involved, 524 million bananas for scale, 2.7 times around the Earth. That's our show for today. Thank you for watching. Roll credits. This is not B-roll. This is... Even though it's cut over top of the edit, you could, and some people might call it a cutaway or a, or a, but it's really now if there were if there were other things that illustrated it, uh, you so know, big L cuts, yeah, <laughs> giant L cuts. Oh, yeah, so, but, oh, we haven't talked about J cuts and L cuts with. We haven't talked about. We haven't had a second hour on titling uh, and and titles. Oh, closing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Credit rolls. We don't really do rolls. We just mostly do slides. That's right. Yes. Because I'll be honest, that rolls look really bad, especially at 24P, which is what everybody does. <laughs> what? You want to actually read the text while it's going up the screen? <laughs>